Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this symbolizes, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at, and is at the God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. A reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. When I was a child, I feared my closet. I feared the ever-present darkness it contained, looming ever larger, more ominously when the lights went off. What might emerge from its dark recesses? I recollect fearing a large gorilla emerging. Strange, I know. Uh, but fear can be funny like that when you're a little kid. Of course, my closet held no danger. Only my clothes, my mom's wedding dress, and other odds and ends. As I got older, one of my greatest fears was school. I wasn't afraid of going to school, but failing at school. So much so that even into adulthood, I'd have a dream that I forgot some schoolwork or that I never showed up for class until the end of the semester. And thankfully, even though it kept me up in the middle of the night tossing back and forth, thankfully there was nothing to these nightmares. There are enough nightmares in the waking world. As we age, we become more and more aware that life is fragile, that evil and cruelty abounds, that things can change very suddenly and terribly. In our youth, we might have felt big on occasion, but as time goes on, we learn just how small we are in the midst of this world. We learn that we can be crushed, especially by those with human faces. But while we may fear other human beings, and our fear may fill us with anger or trepidation, the conflict in our midst is not inspired by human beings. It is satanic in origin. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians 6, 12. He says there, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Behind human appearances, demonic forces are at work. Rebellious spirits, fallen angels, supervise, coordinate, and inspire the depravity that we witness. Now, this 
This does not excuse human accomplices. Those outside of Jesus Christ are willing participants. This just reminds us of what we're up against. That it's worse than you even might imagine. We're not facing down dictators. We are not facing down the malevolent, the sadistic, and the perverse. We are facing down Satan and his cohort. Honestly, we don't take that seriously enough. But taking it seriously does not mean living in fear. And if we should not live in fear of the demonic, we should not fear the human errand boys who do their bidding. Why do we not live in fear in the face of opposition and persecution? This is what Peter intends to explain to us here at the end of chapter 3. Now, you'll recall that in the previous verses, Peter has been instructing the Christians that they should persevere in doing good even in the face of persecution. That they should not repay evil for evil. That they should be ready to offer a defense for the faith, not with lots of clamor, but with, with gentleness and kindness towards those who are opposing them in the hopes that they will turn to Christ. And the last verse that we covered in that section, verse 18, we saw how Peter brought forward the example of Christ as one that we ought to follow ourselves. That just as Christ suffered, so we ought to follow in his footsteps and being willing to suffer at the hands of evil people. Now, part of the reason why that's compelling to look at Christ is because we understand that there was a purpose to his suffering. And so we can understand that if there was a purpose for his suffering, even while you know he understood it, but his disciples couldn't see and understand it. So we can understand that in our circumstances, that when we suffer, there is meaning and purpose, even if we can't fully perceive it. Now, the meaning and particular purpose to Christ's suffering was that he might bring us to God. And he does this by laying down his life as a sacrifice for sins. Once for sins, he suffered as a sacrifice. That's what Peter is saying here. And in the meaning that he has here and noting that Jesus suffered once for sins is that what Jesus suffered was completely sufficient and conclusive. It was totally sufficient to bring us to God. We hear this echoed in Hebrews 9 verses 27 through 28. Booking just actually at verse 28. The writer of Hebrews says, Christ was suffered, was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sins, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, the reason why this is a big deal, this idea that Christ only had to suffer once, only had to die once, is that it reminds us that 
Our sins aren't too big for God. Our sins aren't too big for Jesus to cover. You know, I've had kind of some sad conversations with people before where they, they kind of feel like they can't come to church because they're not good enough. As though like they kind of hit the ceiling on like what could be covered by Jesus and they exceeded that and so they don't have any place to belong here. And that's just not true. Christ is completely sufficient. He's sufficient for your past sins. He's sufficient for your present sins. He's sufficient for your future sins. You know, we all know that we are to repent from our sins, to turn away from sin, and yet we admit that we are sinners and that we continue to wrestle with sin day by day. Jesus is enough to cover those sins. He doesn't need to be sacrificed again. And so because of this, we can have confidence in coming before God. The next chapter over in Hebrews says this, verses 19 through 22, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great, uh, have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus died to bring us to God. Jesus died so that we might draw near to God with confidence and boldness, knowing that we are accepted in him. Now, the second half of of verse 18 here really fills out why it is that Jesus' suffering was meaningful. Because if Jesus only suffered and died, it wouldn't have accomplished really anything. And talking about it as being meaningful while he remained dead in the grave would just be kind of putting a positive spin on things. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that if Christ is not raised, you are stuck in your sins. Now, we're basically a bunch of of fools for suffering just like him if Jesus is is still dead. But what Peter is testifying to here is that not only did Jesus die, but he also rose from the dead. And, And Peter is saying this not as one was a second-hand reporter who heard this from someone else. He himself saw Jesus alive, face to face. He ate with Jesus. And so when it says that he, Jesus is made alive in the Spirit, what Peter is not saying is that Jesus was just made spiritually alive. No, that's not what he's saying. That's, that contradicts the whole entire rest of the New Testament's testimony about the resurrection of Jesus contradicts Peter's own experience with Jesus, as I've just mentioned. And it says that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. What Peter is telling us is that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was not a natural occurrence. It cannot be merely explained by natural phenomenon. Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he was 
raised from the dead, he came forth with a transformed body. Paul calls in 1 Corinthians a spiritual body. And so there's a continuity between what had existed previously, but there's something new that is introduced as Jesus conquers death, different than the body of Lazarus who was raised and then he, he did die again. This is why we can have hope in the face of suffering because Christ has been raised. Now, we go to verse 19 here and things kind of take an unexpected turn. Peter writes, After being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits and those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now you can just imagine, you know, you're you're hearing what Peter's saying here, like, okay, I'm tracking, I'm tracking, and then all of a sudden it's like he takes a left turn and he's like, What what are you what are you talking about here? Imprisoned spirits and Jesus going to make proclamation to them. Admittedly, this is a difficult passage to understand. And there's about about three different interpretations of what this passage would typically um, be understood to be communicating. And I'm going to give you the one that I think is the right interpretation here. And so let's work backwards. We have to ask, well, just who are these spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah? Well, we go back to Genesis 6, and we look at verses 3 through 7. We have a report of the condition of the world at that time. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. And in the following verses, it talks about how God did take notice of Noah and his family, Noah's righteousness, an ark is built, they are preserved. But we want to pay attention to here, pay attention here to the disobedience that's going on. Peter's talked about these spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah. And the disobedience that we see occurring here is these Nephilim, these sons of God, consorting with human women and bringing forth children. Now that opens up a whole nother can of worms. We discussed this actually in our small group a few a couple of weeks ago. I was like, well, how does that work? And I have to say, I do not know. I don't know. But it seems apparent here that the sons of God are not merely human beings, that there is something supernatural about them. And when we go to other parts of Scripture, we kind of collect the evidence and kind of 
a picture I think comes together that indicates that that's the correct understanding here. We go to Second Peter, which we'll get to eventually, um, and Peter says there also in Second Peter two verses four through five, he said, "For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world when He brought the flood on its godly people." but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. And then he goes on and talks about Sodom. And so there seems like there's um, kind of a chronology here, talking about these disobedient spirits. And that seems like this is what preceded the flood. And, and so it seems to align with what we're seeing in Genesis, what Peter's talking about. And, and Jude, and Jude 1.6, says in, in the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So what Jude is talking about here is an angelic rebellion, a, a, an angelic stepping out of line against God's authority and God's designs. And that seems to align pretty well with what we see going on in the days of Noah. There's disorder. There's there's an acting against God's designs. And obviously that extends the human population, but there seems like there's some spiritual interference going on, a spiritual rebellion as well. And when we think about spirits, we've just seen these two previous New Testament passages that refers to angels. But when we think about spirits, while that could refer to human beings, very often it's referring to fallen angels, to demons, not rather than to like human ghosts. Um, in Luke 10, verses 17 through 20, Jesus sent out the 72 disciples um, out to all the villages around the area of Galilee and to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. And... They return with joy, it says, and they tell Jesus, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So again, you know, when it comes to this passage, we have to hold the interpretation a little bit tentatively. But it seems to me that the spirits that are being referred to here are disobedient angels from the time of Noah. So Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he's going to these imprisoned spirits from the days of Noah. And... He's making this proclamation. Now, because we have identified who Jesus' audience here that is here, that they're fallen angels, not human beings, we would understand this message to be not a message of calling them to repentance, but rather a proclamation of victory. Because that is part of the gospel message as well. It's not just merely a message of repent, believe in Jesus. It's a declaration of God's victory over sin and death in Jesus Christ. 
And that's what Jesus is doing here. And it makes sense that he would be making that sort of proclamation because, again, this is happening after he's been raised from the dead. It's not happening between him dying and him being raised from the dead as though he was only made spiritually alive in some kind of like weird in-between status. This is occurring after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Which this then kind of leads us understanding, okay, this is happening after the resurrection. He's preaching to these, he's making a proclamation to these imprisoned spirits. This raises the question of, well, where is this happening? And again, this is a difficult question. Um, You know, when we think about heavenly realities, as human beings, we kind of think within the frame of reference of up and down, you know, down is bad, down is hell. Heaven is up. Um, of course, if you drilled to the center of the earth, you would not find hell there. Um, this is just a way for humans to try to make sense of spiritual realities that um, you could say are, the, are of a other dimension that we're not able to observe. Interestingly, uh, when it comes to trying to understand those heaven realities, we do have a report from Paul um, in 2 Corinthians 12, where it seems like he's talking about an experience that he had, where he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So, Based on what Paul says there, does that mean that there are levels to heaven? Um, Perhaps. He could also be just using a common human framework that was familiar to his audience to communicate the experience that he had in heaven. I think I could go either way. The fact of the matter is is that the Bible doesn't tease a lot of those details out. Uh, The reason why I bring this up is because there's at least one Jewish writing from this time that envisions an imprisonment of these evil spirits in the heavens. And so we can imagine Jesus, as he's ascending to the Father, stopping along the way to make this proclamation. Now, I want to introduce like a huge block of salt, you know, talking about a grain of salt, a a huge block of salt here, because um, I'm going to show you 2 Enoch 7 just because it's really interesting but it is not divinely inspired scripture. This is popular Jewish imagination of what the heavens are like. But this is important because this is the context that Peter's working in. So to consider how he's understanding Jesus proceeding from being resurrected and then making this proclamation. So 2 Enoch 7, again, not the Bible, not scripture. It says about how Enoch was taken to to second heaven, word six says, and those men picked me up and brought me up to the second heaven. And they showed me, and I saw a darkness greater than earthly darkness. And there I perceived prisoners under God, hanging up, waiting for the measureless judgment. And those angels have the appearance of darkness itself, more than earthly darkness. And unceasingly they made weeping all the day long. And I said to the men who were with me, why are these ones being tormented unceasingly? Those men answered me, These are those who turned away from the Lord, who did not obey the Lord's commandments, but of their own will plotted together and turned away with their prince 
and with those who are under restraint in the fifth heaven. I felt very sorry for them. And those angels bowed down to me and said to me, Man of God, pray for us to the Lord. And I answered them and said, Who am I, a mortal man, that I should pray for angels? Who knows where I am going and what will confront me, or who indeed will pray for me? But really interesting here. We have these spirits that are imprisoned. Again, clearly it's not talking about human beings here because Enoch's like, how can I pray for you? You're a bunch of fallen angels. So you have these fallen angels being depicted as being under heavenly imprisonment because of their rebellion. So possibly this is kind of Peter's frame of mind here, regardless of whether it matches up with all the details in terms of this kind of fictional account. So Jesus dies, he's raised from the dead, and he ascends to heaven, makes this proclamation. And then as we'll see in verse 22, he sits at God's right hand, which fits very well with this idea of proclaiming a victory. Now, before looking closely at what this means for Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God, proclaiming this victory, Peter has more to say about the flood in the days of Noah, tying it into Christian baptism. He says in the second half of verse 20, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Peter is saying here is that the flood of Noah is a symbol. It anticipates the waters of baptism through which we pass in Jesus Christ. So just as Noah and his family passed through the waters of the flood and were saved Peter's drawing a parallel here and saying, as we pass through the waters of baptism in Jesus Christ, so are we saved. We pass from death unto life. And what he wants to make clear here is that it's not a superficial sort of cleansing. There's lots of cleansing rituals in that day that were kind of very concerned about kind of surface level cleanliness. He says it's not about washing dirt away. Nor should you really understand, you shouldn't understand it at all as being magical. It's not about the water. It has no salvific properties to it in and of itself. A person can only be saved through baptism because baptism represents the reality of Christ's resurrection. If we go back to the first chapter in this letter, You'll recall Peter's opening praise where he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, everything hangs on Jesus being raised from the dead. Because he has been raised, we are given this new birth. We've been given a living hope. Now, before I'm, I, I, you know, I mentioned that death is meaningless unless Jesus' death is meaningless unless he is raised. And, and the reason why is because the resurrection of Jesus secures our justification before God. Jesus can only make things right between us and God if he's alive. If Jesus remains dead, then all the accusations 
of his opponents stand that he was blaspheming God. He seems cursed by God unless he is raised from the dead. If Jesus is now raised from the dead, he can't intercede as our mediator, standing before us, before God the Father as our great high priest. And of course, he can't restore us to God because we're just left in our sins, not only in the guilt of our sins, but our sinful condition. We remain slaves to sin. This is why Paul says in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over, over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. What baptism is for us is the means by which we can, can take action and exercise faith, be joined to Christ's resurrection. Paul's, Paul spells out the implications of this, of a person exercising this faith and entering into baptism in Romans 6, verses 4 through 11. He says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God and Christ Jesus. So when we think about our baptism in Jesus Christ, yes, we should think about our justification in Christ, the forgiveness that we receive. But it's a lot more than just that, too. Baptism in Christ is that occasion in which by us putting faith in Jesus Christ, we are put to, to death. We are made dead to the power of sin and we are joined to the resurrection of Christ so that we are freed from sin's power so that we can live a new sort of life today. And then, of course, with this also is the promise of physical resurrection that we will be raised to enter into eternal life rather than damnation. Now, when we look at that last verse there where Paul says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God and Christ Jesus, I think sometimes we can read something like that and, and we can think that this is a matter of our mental processes kind of exerting willpower in considering ourselves dead to sin. That just by kind of the dint of my effort, I will be dead to sin. And it won't have power over me. And I'm going to live a good life. Listen. The work of baptism is not just some sort of mental ritual you go through. There's a spiritual reality at work when we are baptized and joined to Jesus Christ. The reality of us being freed from sin is a reality wrought by the Holy Spirit. In Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, 
says, but when the kindness and love of our of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of, re- of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. The work of the Holy Spirit goes hand in hand with our baptism in Jesus Christ and making us new people. Taking a little break in the action here because in a couple of moments you're going to hear some electrical interference that unfortunately disrupted our recording of the sermon. And uh, rather than trying to uh, re-articulate the last 11 minutes of this sermon, I just wanted to just make two quick points and then you can try to listen to the rest if you want, which is that in the New Testament it's clear that salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And so baptism is only significant if it's paired with our confession of faith. And then the last point uh, that concludes in verse 22 of this passage is that as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, it's clear that he is ruling and reigning and that he has overcome all the powers of evil, all the demonic forces. He's overcome Satan. Um, and that pairs well with the proclamation that he makes when he goes and visits these imprisoned spirits that we just talked about uh, a little while ago. So I leave you the rest of the sermon, and uh, if you can suffer it, then uh, good for you. <laughs> so again, it's not about the water itself. If it was just about the water itself, we'd be t- tempted to have like dunking tanks and like just throw people throw people in. Um, and honestly, that's we saw things like that kind of happen in medieval times. There was like some select occasions when children were, were stolen because church leaders knew they, they weren't going to be baptized. And so they forced them to be baptized because they wanted to save them. And you can admire their desire there, but it's the wrong approach. We have to recognize that today that some people can take have that magical view of baptism, especially when it comes to infants. Now, as a church, we don't practice infant baptism because, as I'm going to share as we go on, that faith is necessary. It's a necessary component of, of baptism. And there are other Protestant Christians, not just a Catholic thing, there are other Protestant Christians who practice baptism. And all of them, too, like us, would say that it's not water itself that saves. It's not a magical ritual. It's the faith represented in that baptism. When they look to Paul's letter to the Romans, and also to Jesus' words in John 3, we see that this made super clear. Paul says in Romans 10, 9 through 10, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It doesn't matter how much you're dumped in the water. If you're not professing your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not going to be saved. Jesus says it all. He just died. Believe in him. 
John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so we can say that there are going to be, I think, innumerable people who were baptized as infants who are going to be saved because they did have faith. There's also going to be innumerable people that were baptized as infants and are not going to be saved because no faith ever emerged in their life. I think we can also say, too, that there's even those who are children to seem to make a profession of faith and were baptized, but as their life has gone on, it, that has proved to be a false confession of, of faith as they completely abandoned Christ. Um, they live completely contrary to Christ. I, I want to assure you, because I know sometimes when someone says something like that, some of you think, like, oh, am, have I been in the faith? I know I sin here and there. And so, no. You have the faith if you persevere. Jesus Christ does not mean that you're perfect. And we don't know the end from the beginning. Like, you know, I've talked with people in our congregation where they walked away from the faith for a while and then they came back. And I think the grace of God was working all ways throughout there. But as far as our own human perspective goes and how we can judge things, it is possible for someone to make a false confession of faith even though they go through all the motions. God knows the end from the beginning. And the good news here for us that Peter is really trying to drive across here is that because Jesus has died and he's risen again, and because we are joined to him through baptism in faith, we are no longer condemned. We are not going to perish in the flood. We are actually saved through the resurrection of Christ is also good news because it means that Jesus reigns. That's what Peter's saying in verse 22. He says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers and submission to him. That's why he's making this proclamation to these imprisoned spirits. He's like, you all thought you could beat me. You couldn't do it. The powers of this world were arrayed against Jesus, conspiring to kill him. And yet, little did they know they were working right into God's plan to bring redemption, restoration to mankind. The authority that we see Jesus receiving here aligns completely with what was prophesied in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. Does there in my vision at night I, Daniel speaking here, looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Jesus always talks about himself as being a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. He 
sits on the throne. He begins his rule and reign as king over all things. Now, admittedly, the fullness of his rule has not been fully revealed yet. We do see lots of evil in this world. We're kind of living in a time of in-between. We have to understand that Christ is, in fact, king. That he occupies the throne. And that the kingdom in its fullness is coming. He holds all the power. Power that you no know, demons or rebellious angels, and certainly no human powers will be able to hold back. And Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, that there's encouragement here for us. In Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 23, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us, for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is this body, the fullness of him, fills everything in every way. Jesus had is good news for us because he shares the power of God with us. Recognize the demons, but do not fear them. We are men and women of the King. In the name of Jesus, no demon can stand. They must bow. They must give way. Under the name of Jesus, I am not condemned though all the powers of this world condemn me. If you reject the rule of sin and the devil's way, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are forgiven. You are free. Your only ruler is Jesus. Neither the devil nor man can do anything to you that Jesus will not overcome tenfold. Do they threaten you with death? Christ has broken death. Like Jesus, too, will be sown in weakness, but raised in power. Do they threaten you with poverty? In Christ, we will inherit everlasting riches and a new creation. They will not be there. All those who have twisted God's good worlds will be destroyed. Human alike. Christ is on the throne. We share in his power today. We shall reign with him forever in the new heavens and new earth that will be revealed when he returns. Let us pray. Dear Father, we come before you to declare hallelujah. Reality which has come to pass that you 
who have saved us in Jesus Christ because he laid his life down once for all. By the power of the Holy Spirit took it back up again so that we would be justified, forgiven of our sins, so that we can be free from sin's power, so that we would have new life and the face of death. Father, we celebrate that Jesus is more powerful than Satan. That Jesus is more powerful than the demons. That he is more powerful than all the wicked forces, spiritual and human that we see in this world. Father, he is more powerful. We know this because he has overcome. He lives and reigns and sits at your right hand. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us that confidence to know that we share in that strength and power. We need not live in fear of anything, of any demon, of any human, nor of death. Christ, we are sharing in the victory. We'll share in the victory in all its fullness. Praise of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through 1st and 2nd Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.